from Kurtco Media. This is Cars That Matter. This is Robert Ross with Kurt Coe's Cars That Matter. Welcome back for another episode. I've got a very interesting guest today, Patrick G. Kelly. Patrick, welcome. Good morning. How are you today? Well, I'm doing great. I like to say I'm living large, living the life as we all are in some kind of curious uh, solitary confinement, as it were, some more solitary than others. Gives us an opportunity to reflect on things that are more intimate. And some of those intimate things are, in fact, automobile concept art that we're going to talk to you about today. It's funny, Patrick, most of the folks that I've spoken to on our podcast are people that I've known for some time. But in this case, I feel like I'm making a new friend today, just precisely the kind of thing that I'd like our listeners to feel, that they're making new friends when they tune in and meet someone for the first time. So it's a great pleasure to have you here. Likewise. You're up in Aptos, California. I'm down here in Los Angeles, and we seem to be doing a pretty good job of remotely connecting. And I guess that's, once again, a connection made through cars, this time not on a concourse field or at a racetrack, but virtually on Zoom video and looking at some great pictures of some absolutely amazing things, which are the substance of your collection. Let's talk about your book, Patrick. It's called Imagine Automobile Concept Cars from the 1930s to the 1980s. And I guess it was just published by Dalton Watson Fine Books. Is that right? You bet. Dalton Watson, fantastic folks. They got wind of my collection. They did nothing but stellar work on a very, very timely manner. They jumped right on it. Awesome people. I absolutely could not have done it without them. I've never written a word of English in my life. <laughs> You know, the writing is superb and gave me a great overview of a topic that I know very little about. Your preface, of course, was intriguing. I want to talk about that in a minute, you know, your personal experience getting into this subject. And then, of course, you know, in the history of auto design section, I learned some incredible things. But let's talk about you. You mentioned you grew up in Fresno and saw an E-type coupe. <laughs> I, I tell you, it was an amazing black and red coupe, wide, wide. Oh, those were popular back then. That's right. Absolutely. They were just like this extra beautiful accessory on an amazing car. And this was a buddy of mine and his mom, and she was quite well turned out. So the combination of the mom exiting the E-Type, <laughs> this black amazing thing pulling into the driveway of a nondescript house in our little town was quite a stunner. If I could recreate it in my mind's eye, it'd be right there today. Well, it sounds like that got you into cars pretty hot and heavy. You went on to talk about your first job at a pharmacy, is that right? I was 16. I was working for a pharmacist in Fresno. Nice guy. He hired me as a delivery driver, which I was happy to have the extra change. I never really did a delivery. He would show up every day in a new car. So he was bringing in a different car every day. And in lieu of doing deliveries, I would wash, wax, clean, vacuum, these amazing things he'd bring in. And at 16, of course, you know most everything there is to know. So I'm wondering why this guy is bringing in these big cornball cars that I've never seen before. You know, he's bringing in Chrysler 300s. Oh, boy. Not much bigger than that back then. Well, yeah. The only other thing that blew me away was a 56 Continental. A Mark II. Oh, brother. 
Absolutely. And silver and red. <laughs> oh, it's the most expensive car in the world then, practically. Absolutely. So I proceeded to wash and wax and polish every little spin on those amazing wheels. And he let me take it around the block. Good heavens. That was a $14,000 car, if, my, if memory serves. That's right. It was so impressive. The doors closed like a bank ball. Yeah. It drove like a cloud. He went on to tell me these stories about the Chryslers and what was under the hood and push-button transmissions, and he's bringing in Cadillacs and 70s Eldorados and Coronados, and he had a good pharmacy. <laughs> <laughs> well, it obviously a great upbringing for you that obviously clicked the switch somewhere, man. I'm envious because I never got to play with those kind of toys when I was that age. Well, it sounds like you were a little ahead of the curve, too, because you got into this hobby of collecting concept drawings. And this book, by the way, is about your collection. How did it get started? What was the spark for that? I've been a collector of various things for a long time, and it's taken on different turns and twists, as anybody that's a collector knows that happens. <laughs> and I would make my way up to San Francisco for the Art Deco show up there, and it would be you know, streamlined, 50s, 60s, 40s, you name it, a little bit of this, a little of everything. Nice show. And I'd go every year. This one year, I stopped into a booth that had some amazing illustration art, a big original artwork, dime novel covers. Oh, some of those great Pulp Fiction illustrations were amazing. The Pulp Fiction, science fiction, men's magazine, whatever they were, the illustrations were incredible. So I turned my gaze around the several pieces of automobile concept art. They were very interesting. I had a small one that was right in my budget. And I thought, yeah, this is kind of interesting. What's the story? And he gave me a little bit of history. This is my pal, Leo, that's been instrumental in helping me get this collection together. He told me about this particular piece. It was from 1936, a very simple line drawing, black and white. And I kind of fell in love with that, took it home and put it on the wall and didn't think much about it. The following year, I went back to the show and he had some more. And I thought, well, this is getting better because these things were really taken off. Uh, they were amazing designs. So I bought a couple more. We did this for a few years in a row, and he realized that I was interested in the artwork. Kept bringing more, and I kept buying more. And before you know it, we've established a very nice collection. Well, that's amazing. Clearly, we'll dig into that. But just before we do, I'd like to ask, I mean, how many drawings do you own? I've got about 400, and they're ranging in size from 12 to some over 7 feet long. Good heaven. So those are actual one-to-one -one renderings, practically. Well, they were the big ones that would make it up through the ranks. The bigger they got, the more the automobile companies' boards would get to see these. And if they made it up to big scale, there was a chance that it might actually make it to production. In other words, a clay model would come from that. Exactly. You've got some great pictures in your book of, of the studios, actually, as kind of walk through your book later on in the conversation today. Some of the most uh, evocative photos are the ones of these designers in the Space Age studios with just all the great furniture, the Saarinen chairs and the Ames yeah. chairs <laughs> and the great potted plants from architectural pottery and the yes. beautiful drawing tables and the clean spaces. And it just, it's every mid-century designer's dream to see some of these interior with the drawings, some of them as big as one-to-one, -one. all these guys in white shirts and skinny ties working away in mass. And some of them you can even sort of recognize as cars that we eventually saw on the road. 
Yes, absolutely. The photos are tremendous, and we were blessed. GM's archives allowed us to share those, and our also Art Center in Pasadena has been right. just a, a huge, huge help. They've been spectacular. We were able to do their show last year, donated a few books to the library, and met a bunch of people that were grads. That's what makes this so exciting, is that you're not only collecting history, but you've got luminaries of that history, uh, many of whom are quite active, and as you mentioned, a lot of them from Art Center. I mean, at the height of the big three, how many designers were working? Well, there were hundreds of companies at any given time until it whittled down, but there were thousands of mostly men drawing, a few women, and one who's my favorite, But there were thousands of these guys in the Art Center, Pratt, a lot of these guys from in and around Detroit, their schools of design. This is what they wanted to do. And they would head off either from Pasadena (laughs) to Detroit, which had to be an interesting sell, come out from a beautiful, sunny California and live in Detroit. That's uh, right. We got a job for you. So there were thousands of these guys. Many of them did it for life. Many of them were one-offs. Lots of them didn't like what it was. They didn't like the structure. They didn't like the corporate. They didn't like the weather. A myriad of reasons. Or they went into some other design, maybe not car, maybe appliances, maybe furniture, maybe refrigerators, maybe other companies that needed designers. These guys could draw so they could draw anything. If their passion was vehicles and that was their strong point, then that's where they stayed. They stayed with vehicles. If they were just wanted to design, they could go anywhere they wanted. You know, it's interesting. There really did seem to be a crossover, a confluence between transportation design, whether it's cars or locomotives or, or yes. airplanes and hell, vacuum cleaners and toasters. I mean, there was such a design aesthetic that was happening during the streamlined era. And you look at somebody like Studebaker's Raymond Lowy and, you know, he's designing a, an Avanti in the early 60s, but he designed Pennsylvania Railroad locomotives and the Coke bottle. Absolutely. All of this stuff sort of carried through to virtually every touch point of industrialized output. Of course, today, you know, it's antithetical to the notion that there's such a thing as a man's career. But you did mention that, you know, 99 and 9 tenths percent of everybody working in the business back then was a man. And I'm not exactly sure why that was, because clearly in a lot of ways, uh, design has been a field, whether it's textile design or furniture design, that has at times attracted large number of women. You bet. It always could have. It probably should have. It was pretty typically a man-dominated business, which most businesses in the 40s and 50s were. For women to get ahead or to get into design at all, they were fairly well segregated into doing something like, why don't you design the interior? Pick the colors. Yes, pick the colors, put some flowers in here, figure out a tissue holder that can work, something mundane, still designed, but not anything on the big scale. And my one gal that is in the book that I love dearly, Joan Creamer, was the first gal that GM allowed to do an exterior. That's right. I saw a picture of her in your book. What car did she work on? She worked for Cadillac and GM and went off to do other design later on. Still active, great friend. Just saw her in Amelia Island in March when we were back there. Uh, <laughs> living life. Yeah, living life at a real Concours <laughs> event. Yes, indeed. Well, this is great. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. If you're like us, you're looking for a way to make stay at home a little more special. Well, we're going to let you in on our secret. 
Join Rob Vices to get luxury cocktail kits, toys, tools, tech, and other incredible items delivered straight to your home on a monthly basis. The value is incredible. Your first box is going to be a $400 tequila curation, and you can sign up for as little as $99 a month. Use the code PODCAST, and you'll save an extra $50 at sign up. So head to robvices.com to bring exciting experiences safely to your door. Remember, use the code PODCAST and go to robbvices.com. Welcome back to Cars That Matter. One thing that that I was fascinated by in in reading your book is you sort of discussed the evolution of design, and it became obvious that, gosh, design wasn't really always there as a linchpin of selling cars. In other words, you think about Henry Ford. He started by stamping out, you know, Model Ts and later Model As. And well, you know, his famous saying, you can have any color you want because they were virtually all the same. And design wasn't really so much a part of the selling equation. And I get the feeling that it was like a guy like Alfred P. Sloan who sort of changed the game in the early 30s. Yeah, they did. You know, he did. And later on, Harley Earl and Harley was his protege, right? I guess he brought Harley on, and that's when it really started. That's right. That's That was the heyday of trying to do a new model year. What are we going to do different? How are we going to keep you in the family? We want you to be a Cadillac guy. We want you to be a Lincoln guy. What do we do to keep you your entire life? But they also gave him a ladder of success, as you call it in the book, where you might move up from a Chevy to a Pontiac. Yes. Eventually, if you're really something special, a Cadillac. Or from a Ford to a Lincoln, a Ford or Mercury to Lincoln. or Exactly. They wanted you to stay in family. That was a great aspiration. Well, you know, you mentioned Buick. And according to history, Patrick, correct me if I'm wrong, but the Buick Y job from 1938, that was done under Harley Earl. I, I forget the name of the actual designer. But that car was kind of the first real concept car, was it not? Yes, that's right. That was a game changer, and it just went off from then. We were really lucky at Amelia to see part of the honoring of that show in March was a lot of Roger Penske's contributions, but it also was the cards of Harley Earl. There was no way I could stay in California and not go out and see these amazing things. (laughs) Uh, It was incredible. And you look at their big, wide open heads. They could do anything they wanted. It was such a role and such a time. We had won the war. We were feeling great. There was no end to their imagination. And that's kind of why I did this book and why I named it that. It was all about what you wanted to do and how you wanted to do it. Now, somebody smiled on the project and you were ready to go. There's no question then, I guess the 50s really were the golden era back when the GM Motoramas were traveling around the country. And I guess Harley retired in in the late 50s, but Bill Mitchell took over and things went from zero to 60 pretty quickly at that point. Almost literally too, because performance really became a component part of an automobile success. But still, styling was sort of the key driver, the key element. He was a very interesting guy, a lot of vision. He loved the horsepower. And he liked, you know, this Mako shark. Yeah. Now, that was the predecessor of the Stingray, right? Was that the predecessor of the Corvette Stingray? Absolutely. Yeah, it's an amazing vehicle. 
We've been talking about GM. You know, obviously GM is sort of the nucleus of design language at the time, you know, certainly in terms of volume as well. But as you just mentioned, it's no doubt that Chrysler with their 300 series and, you know, Virgil Exner's influence was heavily instrumental in pushing design forward, especially in the 50s and 60s. Fins were big, and I guess he sparred a lot with the Italians. There were some Italian give and take there too. Yes. Many of the designers would go overseas and either be sent there to work in their European end. Yes, go out, look around, see what other people are doing, bring in the influence, Mitchell's influence, you know, looking at that Riviera, looking at that boat tail. It was an amazing time in European design, obviously. The cars that came out of Europe were just unbelievable. So that influence was heavy and strong, and no denying it had a strong influence on American design. Of course, Gia's relationship with Ford was substantive at the time, and I know that some of the other Italian studios were occasionally enlisted to do some work with Cadillacs, Pininfarina, Eldorados, and so forth. There was always a little bit of a sparkle and exoticism kind of brought in there. But funnily enough, I think probably the most popular car, certainly in the 60s, the one that was just a runaway sales success and started to put Ford back on the map, was the Mustang. And yet you talk about how that was more of a committee-designed car. Yeah, there are quite a few guys involved in that. Many of the standouts are listed for sure, but it was. There was a little bit of this, a little bit of that. There were lots of guys involved in the design. And when you go back and say, who was that designer? There's people that will have strong opinions on that, who actually was the guy. Not for me to say. I wasn't there. I didn't pick it. We just kind of report that story. That's right. You talked about in your book how the the whole concept of designing actually started in the early 1900s with the New York School for Carriage and Auto Design. I guess back when carriages were still a part of the transportation mix, you'd hang a horse on the front of them and those needed to be designed too. Absolutely. They did. They had to have that. It wasn't a blank slate, but there were very strong design aspects that were worked into that. If you had the money, you could have your coach custom built. You know, and that really entered into coach built cars. Which were were a reality before the war. Certainly in the 20s and 30s, those were what all of the rich people would do. They'd have a chassis delivered from Cadillac or Packard or Rolls-Royce or wherever. And depending on where they lived, it would be bodied. And I guess there were some great coach builders in America. And one of them went on to actually become a huge mass production subsidiary, and that's Fisher. Yes, Fisher was huge, started the same way, you know, coach building, and off they went. And do you remember their logo that would be down at the... I, I the, can't you forget know. it. It's emblazoned in my mind right now. And of course, with the schools being as instrumental as they were in cultivating design practices and design sensibilities, you talked about a couple of schools. I certainly don't want to leave anybody out, but obviously in Detroit, the CCS Center for Creative Studies, and and then out here in Pasadena, imagine that, California, far away from the Center of Auto Manufacture in America was Art Center College of Design. And I guess it started a lot earlier than everybody thought. I read in your book, it started like in 1930. Yeah, that's right. It had a couple different locations until where it is now nestled in this beautiful campus in Pasadena. Can you imagine, you know, going there and seeing this? If you're from the Midwest, if you're from the East, and all of a sudden you wander into this oak-filled forest with these beautiful streamlined buildings. 
Same with the furniture, you know, as you mentioned, all mid-century, beautiful, great stuff. Elwood, all the case study work, tremendous stuff, and, and most of it down south. They had to have their minds so open to, here we go, boys and girls, we can do almost anything we want to do here. But it was not easy work. I, I've got a few friends who've either graduated from Art Center or, or maybe even their kids are going there now. And you talk about working like a scalded ape. It is a boot camp and they <laughs> never let up. There's got to be a mortality rate of survivorship. <laughs> Making it through one of those programs is really something. Yeah, it's tough. Well, Patrick, for sure, there's no question Art Center was and remains a, an important institution. And so many designers came out of both that, that place and CCS. You can literally attach a graduate name to almost every important design that we see on the road today. But funnily, so many of them actually cut their teeth in Detroit or in Pasadena. Let's talk about some of those guys and gals when we come back. Right now, we'll take a break. I'm talking with Patrick G. Kelly, author of Imagine, Automotive Concept Art from the 30s to the 80s. We'll take a break and come back and talk about some of the drawings in his collection. A Moment of Your Time, a new podcast from Kurt Co. Media. Currently 21 years old. And today, I felt like I'm magic extended from her fingertips down to the you base of my You have to take care spine. of yourself because the world needs you and Trust your Trust me, voice. every do-gooder that asked about me was ready to spit on my but dream. Her fingers were facing me. You can feel like your purpose and your worth is really being questioned. going to stop me from playing the piano. She buys walkie-talkies, wonders to whom she should give the second Cats device. Cats don't love humans. We never did. We never will. We just find the ones that are... The beauty of rock climbing is that you can only focus on what's right in front of you. And so our American life begins. We may need to stay apart, but let's create together. Available on all podcast platforms. Submit your piece at kirkco.com slash a moment of your time. Well, we're back from our break. This is Robert with Cars That Matter and my guest, Patrick G. Kelly. We're talking about automobile concept art and Patrick's collection of remarkable drawings, concept drawings of cars. Some of them cars that certainly have never seen the light of the day. Others that are remarkably prescient in their ability to sort of prefigure models that we would all recognize. You were explaining, Patrick, of folks, many of whom are anonymous, other names that we do know. I mean, I'm looking through your book and seeing names like Wayne Cherry and Tom. Tom Gale and Chuck McHose, Struther McMahon, who of course was a remarkable and hugely influential instructor at Art Center, Ed Welburn, obviously a <laughs> yes. big wheel at GM and just recently retired. Patrick, your book really showcases just an A to Z of, of designers, probably a hundred or more. Every page is a new discovery. Why don't you walk us through some of these designs that are particularly important to you? Sure. And going back to art centers, some of the notable graduates that were really influential in the car design, Struther McMinn, Harry Bradley, Wayne Cherry, I've had the great luck to meet on several occasions and saw him at Amelia lately. Of course, the great Sid Mead. I've got a great Sid story and was very, very lucky to meet him before his passing last year. Tremendous, an apex moment of mine. Sid did more, I think, than anyone. I don't think that's going out on a limb. The book is done is an A to Z as far as my designers. We have Richard R.B., yes. who you're probably familiar with, who did amazing design work and went on to do work for many of the industries and tremendous watches, electric watches for Hamilton. Jim Bisignano, 
George Camp, who is on the cover, is one of my favorite guys. That's really a space-age machine. I mean, it could be a car or a hovercraft. You bet. And I showed him a little portfolio of some of the work that I had collected. None of these guys knew that I had this work or that I existed. And I really didn't know them other than hearing some stories. So I went out there with a little brochure and showed them what I had to a man. They all fell over with disbelief that their artwork still existed. I'm fascinated. You you said that about as much as maybe 98% of this stuff got destroyed. And I'm, I'm guessing the companies for whom they worked simply regarded this as so much copy paper by the time the models were done. It was yesterday's news. So how did these precious artifacts actually escape destruction? And how did they get to, into your hands? Well, a lot of these guys would take work home over the weekend, maybe work on it at home, bring it back on Monday, work on it on Sunday. And some of them didn't make it back. <laughs> I was, <laughs> I'll leave that lay. But truly, it was the only way that any of this work left the design school. And thankfully, it did. Yes, exactly. If you live in Detroit, I hear tell that it gets cold back there. And much of this work, maybe grandpa's old drawings, his old car sketches, all that nonsense, kids and family members might have disregarded it as well. It goes down in the basement to be put away. And as we chatted, Detroit gets cold. And evidently, plumbing pipes break. And evidently, they get flooded in the basement. Anything that was surviving stood even a worse chance of surviving Detroit winters. So I think of these pieces that I have and some other people have as really amazing survivors. They shouldn't be around. They really shouldn't exist, but they do. When we went out to Detroit, we didn't have an idea of doing a book. I really just wanted them to see this and meet these guys. When they saw what I had, they went nuts. And one of the guys started to cry. He said, you can't believe I did this work when I was 18 or 20 years old. And here it is. I thought it was long gone. They had nothing to show their grandkids. They had nothing to show their kids. So my wife and I then and there decided that we wanted to, rather than just collect for the heck of it, that we wanted to collect to a point. The point was to honor these guys and to tell the story and to get the work out for people to see. That's a remarkable vision, and hats off to you for having the foresight to imagine that this would actually be a part of the public consciousness and not just a private hoard. I'm practically shed a tear looking at some of these pictures. I see an old buddy of mine, Stuart Reed, when he was probably all of 20 years <laughs> old with Brother McMinn and a, and a class at Art Center. I mean, my God. <laughs> This is ancient history with some of these incredible, incredible models these young guys are standing around. Yeah. For our listeners who might know Stuart or not, Stuart's the chair of transportation design at Art Center, has been there for some time and shepherded a number of contemporary design greats through the school. I'm looking at one picture here in your book, which is fascinating. You'd mentioned one of the few women in the business, Joan Creamer, and she's sitting there with Stan Parker in the background. And the photo's dated 1967, and man, that is one good-looking Cadillac Eldorado behind them. You bet. Her story to me is a screenplay. And if not now, I don't know when. This was somebody that didn't break the glass ceiling, but she sure as heck gave it a good shot. She stayed positive all through the years, still does design work. If Audrain happens this year, I know she's been invited to judge up there. Tremendous gal, Perseverance Plus, and she opened the door for many, many other women. And obviously, she touched some really important high watermarks in the GM design, Cadillac design. That's where I wanted it to go. 
It's about the people. It's about their stories. It has nothing to do with me. I'm just the caretaker for this work. I didn't draw it. I didn't create it, but I'm just sharing it so people know this amazing work should not be lost to time. You know, I think that's the greatest role of any collector, understanding their part in the puzzle and the fact that collectors really are the custodians of, of history and that in order to ensure that it goes forward into the future, they have to take very special care of these things. You know, part of taking care is sharing and publishing a book like yours and being able to excite the minds of not just young future designers, but to honor the ones whose work is being shown. And I'm flipping through here and looking at some of these grand designs, just saying to myself, if if it hadn't been for these guys and gals, our automotive landscape would be much the poorer. This is truly remarkable work. And what I note is that despite the fantasy that seems to be implicit in all of these concepts, there's also a great variety. There's not a sameness. And not to sound like a curmudgeonly old guy who thinks the past was better than the present and certainly the future, the fact of the matter is cars are a lot more the same today than they were back then. And looking at these drawings, everything had a personality. Everything was unique. It's almost like going into that bar scene in Star Wars and every single <laughs> character look different. And I think that's what strikes me about all of these great pieces in your book. Yeah, you'd be hard, really hard pressed to go out and drive down the highway these days and find something that you look at and go, that is incredible design. And even the evolutions of the Corvettes, the Fords, so much of it is very reminiscent of what was happening before. You look at something like Tesla that takes a, a fairly clean sheet. I know out here they are all the rage in Northern California. Somebody else will come out next year and they'll build something that looks just like a Tesla. That's right. There's nothing out there that's pushing the envelope. When Tesla decided to push forward his new pickup truck concept, <laughs> that's you know, right. that's they, right. if they could have hung him in the town square, they would have. And I thought, here you go, guys. You want something fresh and new. Maybe you don't love it. Maybe it's not extraordinarily to your liking, but at least somebody's out there pushing the envelope. And that's the key. You got to try. You got to use your imagination. You got to encourage these kids that are coming up and coming through because they're going to be doing it too. What was fun to see when the young guys were coming through Art Center, and we had a table set up so they could look at the book and look at some models and look at some scales. They went nuts and they looked back at this stuff and they hadn't seen these designs. And I said, look, these are the, <laughs> these are the sh shoulders that you guys are standing on. And they That's did right. get it. And they went crazy. Well, that's fascinating. It kind of begs the question, do you think the kind of magic that we sense when we look at concept drawings that you've published, do you think that's still possible? Is that magic still possible in an, in an age of, you know, primarily computer drawing and CGI, you know, computer generated imagery? The tools that are available today are almost so opulent and so capable that it begs the question, is there something lost in the transition from hand drawn to machine made? I think the future is still bright. And when I see them at Art Center, a lot of the guys are still going back to clay modeling as a base. Mm -hmm. They're using computers, they're using the software, absolutely. But they still hearken back to these old tools. And I was amazed and pleased chatting to one young guy that got a contract with Ferrari. He's off to Italy. And I said, really? This is so old school. He said, oh, absolutely it is. And he got it. You could see it in his eyes. He had the passion. He said, I couldn't do this without having clay models, styrofoam modeling. He said, that's what I'll bring. I'll bring my model. And that's how I got to Ferrari. I thought, huh, 
This is good. The future is bright. Isn't that great? I think all these things, like what we're going through now, I think it makes you hearken back. I think it makes you look backwards a little bit, an eye to the future, but also don't forget where you came from. Don't forget the guys that blaze this trail for you, whether it's veterans of the wars or designers of the automobile, you name it. You got to pay tribute to the past to do your work in the future. Well, Patrick, you've certainly paid tribute by putting together this collection. What began as a quirky observation turned into something quite serious, not just from as a collector, but also as a, a mission to document and gather all these wonderful things in one place. Most of our conversations end with some personal insight that goes beyond the topic at hand. I like to ask every one of my guests to share the three cars that you could have in your own collection if that genie kind of popped out of a bottle and said, hey, pal, I'll throw you three sets of keys. (laughs) What are they going to be? We chatted briefly about the 1956 Continental. That would definitely be on my list. The next, if you could help me on this one, the Lancia Stratos Zero. (laughs) Well, that is a favorite (laughs) of a lot of people, isn't it? So we don't have many to pick from. We're lucky to see that at Art Center last year. That's right. That's the bronze Marcello Gandini design from 1970 and probably the most important car of the era, from certainly from Italy. Uh, yeah, it, it was an incredible thing, and it made a great appearance at Art Center last year, complete with some drivers from another time and planet. That would be <laughs> another one. And then I'd probably have to pick the very earliest Corvette, albeit I'm going to have a little trouble fitting <sighs> in it. They were snug, weren't they? Boy, those and the counterparts, those Thunderbirds from 55 Thunderbird, man, you've got to be a slim gym to get behind a wheel of that sucker. <laughs> That's right. I think if nothing else, I can go outside and look at it for a while because I think it was really one of the ultimate game changers of all times. That's really interesting. You know, that first Corvette, 1953, doesn't get the credit it deserves, but it was absolutely, as you say, a game changer. It really just uh, proposed a dream. It was a dream come true. I think so. And uh, it gets knocked down because it's lack of power. You know what? (laughs) That's that's, that really doesn't matter to me. This was pure design. This was such a game changer that I can overlook a lowly powered six anytime. Three good choices, Patrick. As you alluded, your collection's not complete. I guess no collector's collection ever is. My question would be, uh, where does one see more of these drawings? You can find this book. It's available through me. I'm happy to sign and send off a book. My website is automobileconceptart.com, just like it sounds. I am on Facebook. I'm on Amazon. We're happy to sign and sell, thrilled to sign and sell, or get the book through Dalton, my tremendous publishers, Dalton Watson Fine Automobile Books. I was just talking to them today, and they're spectacular. So either way you want to do it, pick up a copy, or you can go and look at it. You can preview it through the website, let you turn a few pages, see if you like it. And if you want one, let me know. Happy to send you one. Well, that's a great invitation. Thank you. And especially thanks for sharing some of your personal insights with us today and really opening up a world that, as we've discovered, was, well, almost entirely lost to history. So thankfully, not all of it was and can be enjoyed today in the pages of your book. Thank you for having me today. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks to Patrick Kelly, author of Imagine, Concept Cars from the 1930s to the 1980s, for joining us today on Cars That Matter. Come back next time as we continue to talk about the passions that drive us and the passions we drive.
This episode of Cars That Matter was hosted by Robert Ross. Produced by Chris Porter. Edited by A.J. Mosley. Theme song by Celeste and Eric Dick. Additional music and sound by Chris Porter. Please like, subscribe, and share this podcast. I'm Robert Ross. Thanks for listening. Kurt Co. Media. Media for your mind.